Are there nerds here tonight? Nerds! You are a part of the lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. And Carissa. Not hot in spite of being a geek, but because of it. Being a nerd, it's not about what you love. It's about how you love it. Hey guys. Hey everybody. This is Evan. And I'm Carissa. And we are the Lucky 10,000, the podcast that gets you luckier than something really lucky. Oh, you're not even trying anymore. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to make it clever and connect with our subject today, but nah. But before we get to our subject today, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Podbean and Stitcher for having us on. Also to Musings of a Geek and the Tangent Bound Podcast Network for having us with their other shows on those awesome networks. Also, of course, the Bearded Pods Network. You can listen to us on there, along with the Bearded Ones Comedy Podcast and the Teddy and the Bassman Podcast. As we always ask, if you listen to us through Bearded Pods, then pick a different podcast from any one of those other networks just to support the community as a whole. And one more self-shout out. I got a couple more books on Audible, so look up my name, Evan Harris, E-V-A-N-H-A-R-R-I-S, on Audible. Now, today, we have... Another guest. A very special guest. Very special guest. Formerly known to anyone that listens to this podcast simply as Z. Are we going to say his name on the podcast? Yes. Is that allowed now? His name is Zach. Big, we're very imaginative on this podcast. Yeah, I couldn't come up with anything to begin. And Zach's secret code name is Z. Hey. How's it going, Zach? It's going fine, you? Very well. And we have Zach here for a reason, because we have decided to let him determine what we talk about today. And I can tell you, on my end, there's going to be a lot of listening, because I wasn't even sure I knew these existed. But Zach's here to talk about the wizard rules. Yeah. Well, I hope that you'll ask questions, at least. I will, but give us a little preface and explain really what those are, because Carissa kind of told me, and to a certain extent, it reminds me of Isaac Gazimov's robot rules. Is it something along those lines? Not exactly, but there's a certain similarity. Did you read Anthem or anything else by Ayn Rand when you were in high school? I did not, no. Okay. I went to public school in Greer, so no. Okay. I assume you know who she is. Yes, I have heard of Ayn Rand. Ayn, 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 I've heard of her. Okay. <laughs> well, in case anybody in the audience is not, Ayn Rand was a writer in the 50s and 60s, I believe. She grew up in the Soviet Union and then defected to the United States. She did not think very much of communism, and she wrote several pieces of fiction, some of them very short. I think Anthem's about 90 pages long. It's more a novella than anything else. And some of them quite long, like Atlas Shrugged, which I think weighs in at about 800 pages in paperback. Holy Lord. To illustrate her complaints with communism. I know you guys don't like to get political on this show, so I'm going to avoid it. I'm pretty apolitical myself. The sort of the long-term net result of this was that between herself and her followers, she created a ethical model, I suppose, uh, called objectivism, okay. which was an attempt, whether you think that it was successful or not, to create the first scientifically formulated ethical model. Interesting. It never really took off. That this was for a political, a potential political movement? Yeah. It was mostly a sociopolitical movement, not so much to take over politics, I don't know, as a medium, but using ethics to change the social mindset as to how they perceived their political process. Interesting. 
It is kind of a fascinating topic. I mean, just from a kind of high level, I like to read stuff about logic and ethics. And as an entry into political science, that's actually something to learn about. It's a pretty interesting read. I mean, even if you think it's complete bullshit. <laughs> It's really interesting to read through the process of its development. Hey, I think the story behind Scientology is fascinating. <laughs> there you go. Yes. That's not a bad example. It didn't take off nearly as well as Scientology, largely because Ayn Rand was apparently an incredibly unlikable woman. Um, yeah. And my personal opinion is that her early life and early political experiences in the Soviet Union clouded her thinking about things so dramatically well especially at the time i mean you know she came to the united states it was the height of the cold war who was she going to convince i mean everybody in america for the most part was already pretty anti-communist and she was thoroughly unlikable right so starting in the mid-1990s, I believe, an author named Terry Goodkind here in the United States began writing a series of novels that were sort of a primer on objectivism for people that couldn't take their Ayn Rand straight. He yep. is generally a better author than Ayn Rand, although some of the books in the series are atrocious. This series, <laughs> by the way, is called The Sword of Truth series. Fair point. It is a fantasy series. Yeah. I, mean, I hope I so. I think he recognized that considering that objectivism is based on the rules of academic logic, that there was a huge untapped market amongst nerds for followers for objectivism that just didn't ever warm to Ayn Rand. Yeah. And so yeah, you know, she's one of those figures that seems to elicit a lot of very strong feelings one way or the other. I uh, mostly you, hate, but yeah. Yeah. Do you remember, uh, Carissa, that old, old episode of South Park with Officer Bar Brady? Yes. They were going after the, uh, the, ch the, the chicken fucker. Yes. And it turned out it was that book guy. And the whole time you find out Bar Brady's illiterate. And finally he learns how to read. And the first book he reads is, uh, is Atlas Shrugged, Atlas which yep. makes him swear off reading for the rest of his life. Yeah. She was, her style is, in, it's so dry. It's, Written, her fiction is written the way the worst nonfiction, boring account. Like if C-SPAN were a fiction novel. It's not. Well, <laughs> if C-SPAN were written as a fiction novel, it would read much the way Ayn Rand's fiction reads. Much the way 80% of The Phantom Menace is told. <laughs> not far off. Yeah, that's actually not a bad example. It's very, very heavy handed. Her fiction is very, very heavy handed. Yeah. So anyway, he wrote this series of novels, and in each in each novel, he introduces a new wizard rule, which is that novel's lesson on objectivism. Okay. However, taken outside of its pseudo-political slash ethical bent, the wizard rules are still a part of this fantasy series, which is written as a high fantasy series. So there's magic and dragons and wizards and witches. I mean... It is a fantasy series, both at its core and throughout. And the stuff with objectivism is kind of shoehorned in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. <laughs> and there are valid criticisms of the writing style that aren't that I don't think at least Zach's planning on talking about. I would give a brief warning for people that are, after listening to this, thinking about reading the series that haven't read it. Some of the novels are fantastic. I think the first novel, the second novel, and the sixth novel are all some of my favorite novels. Boy, uh, that is a weird bridge between great and bad. <laughs> the first, the second, and the sixth. Some of them are about as about an equal number are terrible. Seven and eight, I think, are both 
pretty awful. Five is not good. And the rest are, they're okay. And anybody that goes into reading uh, whatever 15 book series or 17 book series or however many books are in the series at this point, which is over now. Like if you've ever gone through to read all of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time or all of Discworld, you recognize that sometimes they're going to miss. You can't write a series that long and have everything be perfect all the time. Of course not. Aside from, you know, the things that you might individually find more or less appealing about a specific book in a series, there are, you know, literary criticisms that can be thrown at the Sword of Truth series. But honestly, as just like a kind of enjoyable high fantasy series, it's, it is an enjoyable high fantasy series. And the wizard rules are a part of that. So they're both in-world, valid and useful for the story and the characters and moving the plot along, and in the real world, both for the purpose of introducing people, I suppose, to objectivism, just as an interesting topic, and for, you know, giving people some sort of guidelines that they can just look at, because we're very, as a people, we are very bumper sticker oriented. Sure. So they're kind of good, just like thesis statements, just hit it up at the top, and then you can fill out the rest from that. So now these aren't rules then that have kind of gone from this fantasy series to encompass other fantasy series. These that haven't become like sort of established no. rules no. in fantasy. No. This was specifically to talk about this one ideology. Correct. Correct. Okay. I'm with you. I will state up front, I am not per se an objectivist. I think of the wizard rules largely more as cautionary tales than axiomatic truth but i do think that they're interesting and i think that they come up if you're aware of them they come up in real life with sometimes alarming frequency how many rules are there we are not going to go over any more than a maximum of 11 the series continued on after that point but that's a bit that that was the end of the main series and i think everything he's done since then and i've read some of what he's done since then has really been more i'm I don't have any more ideas, so I'm just going to keep this rolling, even though it's really over. Rule number 15. See rule number six. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I I haven't read most of the following novels or novellas, but I have, in prepping for this show, glanced over the wizard rule entries from those novels, and I'm like, we covered that already. Yeah. (laughs) Does he have like a five-second wizard rule where they (laughs) drop their gruel on the floor or something? No. No. Although, maybe he should have. <laughs> he just starts getting really real-world desperate. Wizard rule number five. Boxing day is for returning items you got at Christmas yes. that you don't necessarily like anymore. Try well, to find the shortest line and go when the crowds are thin. I haven't read the novel that this comes from, and I don't want to spend any time on it, but I was looking through the wiki page, and one of the newer rules is, quote, there have always been those who hate and there always will be, end quote. <laughs> well, no shit, really? I don't even think that counts as a rule. That's, it, yeah, That's exactly. like what fortune cookies do now. They don't even give you fortunes anymore. They just make vague statements. Yep. He should start the new series, the vague, the Wizard's Vague Statements books. Well, those would be interminable. <laughs> oh, yeah, they would never end. All right, so are we ready to get this started? Yeah, sure. yeah, let's do it. All right, Wizard's First Rule. Wizard's First Rule, which is the name of the first novel in the series. People are stupid. They can be made to believe any lie, either because they want it to be true or because they are afraid that it might be. I totally believe that. Yeah. Maybe it's that the means one that, that I'm stupid. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, they go on to talk about this in the in the novels, but it doesn't apply only to stupid people. Even the, the really intelligent characters in the series fall prey to the rule, uh, sometimes on a pretty frequent basis. 
and it is of the bunch the one that I spot most often in actual oh, life. Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, it vaguely reminds me of my favorite line from Men in Black. I was bringing that up right now. Yep. <laughs> And I've used that as a quote before yep. because I just think for a movie that was so commercial and so fun, it stuck with me the first time I saw it and has stayed that way. And we all know the line, I'm sure, when uh, Will Smith finally realizes for sure that there are aliens on the planet and he's talking to Tommy Lee Jones and he goes, why don't you tell people about this? People are smart. Tommy Lee Jones says, a person is smart. People are dumb, stupid animals and you know it. Dumb, panicky, dangerous animals. What a beautifully simple way to say something kind of complex. Yep. Well, yeah, and he delivers it perfectly. Of course. Yeah. Yes, but that's largely, yes, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, that's the rule. Well, and that's definitely, I think, one of the most, I mean, I don't know what the other rules are, but it does seem like a very apparent, I mean, we are in the middle of a, we are the beginning, unfortunately, of an election year. We're going to be seeing a lot of that between now and the end of the year, as we have unfortunately already seen. And it stretches into so many other things. One of the problems with the internet as a whole is that, you know, people will post stories or articles that the headline caught their attention and then they read it. And it's just sort of something that confirms something they already believe, even if it's not true. So it becomes truth. Well, I love there's a huge thing about people who take The Onion seriously. Oh, yeah. That amazes me. To this day, The Onion has been around since I was a child. And yes. there are still, to this day, people who don't recognize that it is complete satire. I mean, yeah. not that they didn't have headlines like four years ago that have actually become true yes. in what was then the future, but they didn't know that at the time. It's not like it was true then. And there are people who will still just post on onion articles like it's real news and freak the fuck out about them yeah um one of my favorite instances of that happening i remember years ago back when reno 911 had been on for about three or four years they had a segment where the uh busty blonde lady i can't remember her name had stopped someone for drunk driving and she gave him the drunk driving test and he did so well on it she started asking him to do other things because she was sure he was drunk and by the end of it, they had both choreographed a dance number, basically. <laughs> and then he missed one little step, and she was like, oh, you missed that one. He's like, yeah, it's because I'm drunk. Oh, oh. She's like, I got you. And she took him into jail, and somebody like called me over to their desk at work and was like, you got to see this. Oh, my God. <laughs> I watched it, and I was like, yeah, that was hilarious. From Reno 911. <laughs> <sighs> so that's a very real, very human thing. Yeah, so yeah. that's why it's the first rule, largely. <laughs> The second rule is the greatest harm can result from the best intentions. Again, a lot of truth there. Yep. Like, have I you don't... guys ever tried to help someone or had like the best, the, the honestly most selfless, altruistic thing in mind and it completely backfired on both you and them and ended up making things worse? Probably. I eschew altruism for the most part, but I'm sure that it's happened before. And I can certainly think of examples in my life where I, what I intended was something good and what sure. happened was not. Well, I mean, it's it's such an old joke about even just uh, somebody mistaking someone who has a weight problem for being pregnant and they think they're giving them some kind of great compliment and it blows up in their face. It's, right. you know, it's just that brain fart moment that everyone has that, you know, I think could be expounded obviously into other things. A lot of people, you know, I think hide their true negative uh, intentions behind good intentions. I mean, what is gossip if not a good way to truly just hurt someone? But people love to disguise it as, well, I care. So I'm talking to people about your problems. Right. Right. The underlying facet of the rule here, as explained in the novel, is that intentions are never enough. 
right. you have to think through what you're about to do, recognize the possible pitfalls, and make your intentions on that basis. Right. That's funny. I have so many bad like moments where I say something stupid without thinking or or I think I'm doing one thing and turn out to be another, which is weird because I, I've always looked at myself as a person who will weigh like every possible con before I do something. But then you, you get those moments where you just think, no, this is a good idea. I got to do it now. Hey, that actually uh, leads into the third rule very nicely. Oh, well, thank you. I knew it was coming. It does. Uh, passion rules reason, for better or for worse. Oh, that's so true. And that's basically what you're talking about. Yep. Like, yeah, absolutely. You think you know exactly what you're doing. You're like, okay, I've weighed all this. I'm going to think about all the things that might go. No, I'm just going to fucking say it. Yeah, exactly. Because you get overcome with that. That's the result. You know, it's funny that we bring this up because that was just a subject of I started watching uh, iZombie on Netflix. And for you, for anyone that doesn't know that show, brief breakdown as girl turns into a zombie, but she's still very conscious of who she is. And she works in a morgue. And every time she eats someone's brain, she gets a flash about their lives. She picks up. Uh, personality traits of theirs and she also helps solve their murders it's kind of like murder she wrote with zombies one episode uh very early on in the run of the episode she gets the brain of a womanizing uh, open relationship artist and when she first turned into a zombie she broke it off with her she broke her engagement off with her fiance who's been heartbroken for six months and then in a fit of passion she went over to his house and told him that you know she was dying not being close to him and just assumed because it was a passionate thing that her heart was a fire with passion for him all over again that he would be completely fine with that without taking into account that he's been in hell for six months because she broke it off and he doesn't know why so it did not go the way she thought it was going to and right. she had a great line about you know a passionate brain is a selfish one yes i diverge a little bit from the author's assessment of this rule like all objectivists good kind is very much in favor of reason and sure. rational thought and i am too for the most part but i think that there is a measure of of the flip side to this rule sure it's foolish to let your your emotions and your passion for something cloud your judgment and rush you into doing something stupid. But at the same time, if you didn't have those passions in the first place, what would your reason get you? Oh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You have to have both. You just have to. Because if you don't succumb to your passions every once in a while, there's a whole lot of joy in life that you're missing. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the major turnoffs to objectivism for a lot of people, even people who might otherwise be attracted to it, you know, particularly brainy people or whatever that that would have enjoyed the reasoning behind all of it are turned off by the sort of the almost robotic feel yeah. of a lot of of Rand's novels, especially that people don't have. It's not an unfair criticism to say that a lot of Randian protagonists lack emotion they're just wooden and stilted and they don't seem very oh. real do we get to call her followers randy's that's amazing <laughs> hello i'm a I, randy i think the technical term is randite no i like randy <laughs> Ooh, we've got a bunch of randy people in here today don't we yeah except they're not because that's so passionate that would be that's what's funny it's the complete opposite of what they really are so the fourth rule one of the weaker rules from one of the weaker novels there is magic and sincere forgiveness in the forgiveness that you give, but more so in the forgiveness that you receive. Mm. I mean, it's a little banal, but uh, there's some truth to it. It's always pissed me off that it's given in that order. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's a th 
that's a thing. That's a truism kind of that we teach our children, like to to be forgiven and yes. to ask for forgiveness. Like those are things that we teach our children to do. It's something that we all kind of grow up. The please, thank yous and I'm sorry's of the world are bread and butter to raising children. Yes. But what bothers me about the way that rule is written is that the first one is in the forgiveness that you give, but more so in the forgiveness that you receive. That's right. a very selfish way to look at that. Yeah. And the magic in the real world, the magic of forgiveness to me is always more in the forgiveness that you give. Yeah, because you're releasing yourself and them from something. Yes. If you are able to earnestly forgive someone else a transgression, that's actually more magical to you. Like that's harder. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Than having someone else give you forgiveness. You're like, yeah, of course you forgive me. But if you are able to do that for someone else's transgressions, yeah. that's above and beyond what, what we kind of would rather do, which is like, hold on to that or use it against it. like the stuff that is negative and poisonous to you psychologically. If you can let go of that, that's the magic. So the fact that it's given in that reverse order has always bugged me. Yeah, I could see that because it's also like it's the height of what we aspire to be as humans to forgive because we always see those things where like, you know, a serial killer is getting convicted at his trial and everyone that, whose family members that he killed comes in and they're all just like, I hate you. I wish you would burn in hell. And then there's always that one person that's like, I forgive you. And everyone's kind of like, wow, it's such a powerful thing when that happens. Yeah. And that's what we should aspire to be as people, because I'll be honest, there are definitely things people could do to me that I would never forgive them for. Or at least I think I would never forgive them for. But that would also weigh on me just as much, if not in some cases more so than them. I think this is... I agree with both of the things that you've both said, but I think that the reason that this rule comes out particularly weak in the series is that I think Goodkind threw this in as a sop to people who aren't objectivists. Um, oh. One of the criticisms of objectivism, and not entirely unfairly, has historically been that it is very cold. It often seems to have to strip out a lot of humanity to follow it. Hmm. And so I think he wrote this in there as a kind of a soft touch rule. But because he is an objectivist, maybe he didn't quite grasp that giving forgiveness is both harder and more impactful on you than receiving it. Sure. And I think it's telling that one of one of the more quotable lines from one of the later novels that isn't a wizard rule but is still incredibly quotable is, mercy for the guilty is treason to the innocent. Huh. That doesn't jive well with this rule. No. It's very and, biblical and, in its contradictions. Yeah. And I think I think that the, the later line is the one that he more identifies with. And it's not only super perfect for the scene that it's in, but also uh, awesome. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's well delivered and it's perfectly placed. Yeah, but I think I see your point. It kind of weakens yeah. the rule itself, even for the sake of a cool moment in a story. If you're going to stick to what you're constructing, you kind of would have to throw that away, one or the other. I mean, there is a really long way about that you can use to explain how those two things are not contradictory and not be like reaching for it. There is a way to explain that, and that's fine. It all is basically part of the human condition. But the human condition is not really something that objectivism takes much into account. Yeah. Interesting. So Wizard's Fifth Rule, one of the best rules from one of the worst novels in the series, mm. 
is mind what people do, not only what they say, for deeds will betray a lie. I don't have a ton to say about that other than it's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, that's also another kind of truism that we all know, which is actions speak louder than words. We all know that. Absolutely. But, you know, you mentioned that we're coming up on an election season here, and every time it happens, I don't have a political party to back, but I'm always fascinated by the number of people who just wholeheartedly buy into rhetoric from anybody right? without taking the time to check and see what their voting record was or if they were right. previously a governor. What, which bills did they veto? Or, you know, who they're taking money from yeah, and exactly. say right. they're going to support or not. Right. Those things are valid things to take into account and you can't just take somebody at their word. But that goes back to the first rule because I think there are a lot of people yes. that do see those things and still justify – Yes. Their support of that person anyway, simply because that person has some sort of charisma that they latch onto, their parents like that person, their yep. friends like that person, or they just have already made their decision and nothing you say or do objectively is going to change their mind. Correct. Like it so, amazes me how many times you confront someone with cold, hard facts about a person and it could be the same thing about someone else. And they would knock that person down for that. And as soon as you confront them about the person they support, they're like, oh, well, that was just a bad day or, oh, that was taken out of context or blah, 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 blah. It happens all the time. Yep. yep. Which is to say that people can't change, that they don't learn from their mistakes and that sometimes it was just a bad day. Right. But, but most of the time, I if think you we establish have, a pattern. Done. Yes. And what is politics but patterns? If you're in the political system for long enough, you show exactly who you are. Exactly. But people don't don't want to take the time to do the research. I mean, and it applies to more than politics. You know, you can come up with endless examples of where people's behavior shows who they really are. Mm -hmm. And people but who they are is not fitting into what your definition of reality, so you can't deal with it. Right. All right. Wizard's sixth rule. I'm going to spend probably longer on this one than any of the others. It is sort of the core rule of objectivism distilled. The only sovereign you can allow to rule you is reason. The first law of reason is this. What exists, exists. What is, is. And from this irreducible bedrock principle, all knowledge is built. It is the foundation from which life is embraced. Thinking is a choice. Wishes and whims are not facts, nor are they a means to discover them. Reason is our only way of grasping reality, is our basic tool of survival. We are free to evade the effort of thinking, to reject reason, but we are not free to avoid the penalty of the abyss we refuse to see. Faith and feelings are the darkness to reason's light. In rejecting reason, refusing to think, one embraces death. The sixth rule is the hub upon which all rules turn. It is not only the most important rule, but the simplest. Nevertheless, it is the one most often ignored and violated, and by far the most despised. It must be wielded in spite of the ceaseless howling protests of the wicked. Rule number six, chapter two. Well, the rule is the only sovereign you can allow to rule you is reason. Yeah, I know, but it was just so funny. He just kept going. I was like, oh, my God, this is so not a bumper sticker friendly rule. <laughs> the first phrase is the rule. Yeah, yeah, I follow. Yeah, and again, like I, I think that goes back to what we said earlier. I think reason is extremely important. I think a lot of people operate. You know, whenever I hear somebody talk about how they did something because they, they felt it in their gut, I'm like, oh, God. So reason is so important. Without reason, we would have been dashed against the rocks of evolution and, and time a long time ago. So, yeah, I, I think it's pretty solid. It's a pretty solid rule. I think this rule is sort of what caused me to begin to question the third rule to some degree and to come to a different understanding of it than the one that Goodkind explains. Yeah. Your reason doesn't get you anything all by itself. It is a no. tool. 
it's a means to an end. But at the same time, just like the examples that you gave, letting your passion run off with you as opposed to filtering them through your reason almost always leads you into trouble. Objectivism is really much more on the side of reason over passion, but I I think that it's a nice mix of both that rewards you with a fulfilling and full life. I absolutely agree with that. I guess that's why my only issue with that was the only sovereign you can have is reason. It kind of makes reason seem like it makes it just based on the rule by itself without the explanation behind it. It makes it kind of sound like they are really just saying that's all you should have. And it, objectivists would largely agree that is all you should have. Boy, I cannot imagine playing cards against humanity with an objectivist. Right? People who are strict adherents to objectivism are rarely... Fun? Yeah, <laughs> Or enjoyable in really any way. <laughs> They're very robotic. I was going to say, are we sure that, that I, I and I, Andy, whatever her name was, and this dude aren't replicants? I'm pretty sure that Goodkind isn't a replicant because he takes some stances with his main characters that step away from the objectivist mainline. Yeah, and you know, that just hit me. That's what makes this guy even more interesting, though, is that he's such, he seems so hardcore about all this reason stuff, but he's also a writer. A writer well, so of was she. fantasy fiction. I well, know, but she doesn't count. Her stuff was, ter- it was terrible. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but, and I mean, again, literary criticisms are not unwarranted for the sort of truth series, but it is at least an actual high fantasy series. Yeah, you would have to have passion and imagination to write one of those. You would think. Yep. Unless every plot line was like, then the two wizards who had hated each other for years sat down together and had a conversation about the nature of existence and being and then assembled some Ikea furniture together. Well, Goodkind has a lot of tell rather than show. Oh, I bet. But there are definite moments of wit and humor and clarity and vision and imagination that don't come from like a computer or a robot. Right. Which Ayn Rand's novels are devoid of humanity. Yeah. Right. Entirely That's what it sounds devoid like. Devoid of it. And the sort of true series is not devoid of humanity. It's full of humanity. It's just also full of humanity that is being directed toward this overarching theme. Yeah. You said you'd never read any Ayn Rand, but no. you, you mentioned Atlas Shrugged, um, which is in a lot of ways her. her That's most the first one people novel. think of if they know her at all. Yeah, typically, <sighs> unless they think of Anthem because it is assigned reading in lots of high schools. Oh yeah, I never it's so short. The main character in Atlas Shrugged is a guy named John Galt, and he basically is a robot. Like he's such an awful protagonist. He is mocked widely in literary circles because he's perfect. He never makes a mistake. Uh. He's the quintessential Mary Sue. That's There is a certain level of John Galt to the maiden protagonist of this story. But part of the, the overarching story is his intense love for this woman that's one of the other major characters. That would never happen in an Ayn Rand novel. No. No. Doesn't sound like it. The main character is very reasonable. Most of these rules are delivered to him by other authorities. This is the one he figures out on his own. I see. He, he is a very reasonable person, but he's also a very passionate person. He just is usually very careful not to let those passions run off with him. Sure. You know, I actually just thought about something. The first novel ends with him doing exactly the thing that this whole series would try to teach him not to do and winning only because of that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's absolutely true. I'm not wrong about that, am I? Like, nope. he's... 
But, you know, I haven't read the book, so I can't really say, but maybe that's the author's way of saying, hey, you know what? These are these are not necessarily steadfast. You can bend them or break like, them. Reason would tell him, don't do this thing that you're about to do, but his passion for this, the love of his life is so overwhelming that he does the thing that Reason would tell him not to do, and that's how he wins. I mean, admittedly, he only knows one of the rules at that point, and there are some factors involved that he's not aware of. But yeah, he wins because he breaks several of the later rules, which is kind of the point of the second book, is him dealing with the fallout of having broken some of the later rules that he didn't know to win in the first book. Yeah, but even if he'd known... He'd have done it anyway. And it would have been the right decision, because that's how he wins. Sure. What the fuck? All right. Did this podcast just get completely torn apart? No, not at all. <laughs> the sole subject man is like, oh my God, it's all been a lie. We live in a world of illusion. No, I think it just goes back to reinforcing the idea that exactly as you said, the rules aren't always steadfast. They're pretty decent rules of thumb. And if you are aware of them and if you pay attention, you will spot them come up in in the world around you on an alarmingly frequent basis. And if you're honest with yourself enough to abide by them most of the time, they will keep you out of trouble you might otherwise have gotten yourself into. But there are always exceptions to every rule. That's true. Well, speaking of, uh, what's the next rule we're getting to? Uh, Wizard's seventh rule, life is the future, not the past. Okay. This is, I think, the worst book in the series. <laughs> None of the main characters that we have spent six lengthy novels dealing with show up almost at all for the entire 700 pages of this novel. It's like if Scrat had his whole one whole Ice Age movie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and honestly, I feel like this entire novel could have been a chapter in a different novel and yeah. it would have been fine. But it's not. Yeah, and that rule in itself is sort of the thing you might see in embroidery in your grandma's bathroom hanging on the wall. Yeah, it's one of the ones that I... I, I took away a different interpretation here than, than the author intended as well. The point that he's trying to make and explains in more detail throughout the course of the novel is that the past is valuable. It, it's the experience that you have that teaches you lessons. And it sometimes comforts you to look back on past events and remember better times. But it's, it's a dead thing. It's fixed. Yeah. And if you're going to really live... You have to focus on the things that, that aren't fixed yet. I tend to feel that you are, in a lot of ways, the sum of all the choices you've ever made. Sure. And so denying your past, even to that extent, is a fool's errand. But yeah, I agree with that. And to some extent, it is a good rule, not for individuals, but for people. Like, the South could probably take a lesson <laughs> from that. Well, based on what happened this past year, there are a lot of people who don't want to do that around here. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a much more valuable thing as a social consciousness rule, as right. opposed to individually, we each need to just kind of stop thinking about the stuff that happened to us to lead us to where we are today. That's bullshit. But overall, as groups of people, socially, as the social animal that human beings are, that's probably a more valid place to put that rule. Yeah, I mean, you have to learn from the mistakes, and you have to remember the mistakes. You just can't dwell on them. And you can't live in them forever. Yeah, and that's yeah. something that I am going through a lot, because I tend to be an over-analytic person, and you know, I've been going to, uh, going to a little 
therapy this past year, and it makes me start to analyze why I act the way I act about certain ways, and I'm always like, there's got to be some connection in my past that makes me act this way, and then I can't find it, and it drives me crazy. Why can't I find it? I've got to <laughs> find it. I've got to find the reason I'm doing the things that I do. And at some point, I think reasonably, you just got to go, well, I may never know, but that doesn't mean I can't change. Right. Right. But it drives me crazy that I still can't find those little connections. Well, and honestly, there may not be a little connection. I mean, that's kind of why I think that you are the sum of all the choices that you've right. made. You may not be able to go back and point at a moment in your life and say, oh, this is this is the decision that I made that leads me to do this thing that I do now. Right. It may be a, a composite of a whole bunch of little decisions, any one of which by themselves would not have had that result. Very true. So, you know, not a, not a terrible rule, I guess. Just kind of one of the more obvious ones, I would say. Yeah, it's more truism than axiomatic, in my opinion. Yeah. Wizard's Eighth Rule, probably the worst novel in the series. Maybe one of the best rules. Deserve victory. Oh, yeah, that's not bad. Or as Tom Hanks said at the end of Saving Private Ryan, earn this. Yeah. Yeah. Earn this. <laughs> oh, God, it hurts. I added the last part. He didn't actually say that. Yeah. I like this rule of the bunch. It's one of my favorites. I think people as a species and as a group are, and Westerners in particular, are much too focused on results mm-hmm. rather oh, absolutely. than the road. And we are too quick to accept a victory that we got through questionable means. Well, I mean, it's such a big deal to say that you're a winner. Everybody's a winner. Yeah, exactly. As soon as you say you're a winner, everyone goes, oh, great, he's a winner. Nobody goes, wait, how did he get those wins? Did he deserve those wins? Did what he win for is a good thing? Right. Well, I mean, it goes back to some things that lots of people, you know, take exception with in the modern world. Like, it's a silly example to to me, but lots of people are super upset about the fact that these days kids that play in little league or softball or whatever get a trophy right and they all just get a trophy for right you know or they've changed the rules to soccer in certain parts of the country for younger children so that there's no winner and there's no loser or you, right you know whatever but oh, I, i'm kind of bothered by that and even uh, as a parent it's like i don't want to see my child's heart get broken i don't want to see my child disappointed it makes me sad however there's a amount of training for life that has to happen and if you just accept the fact that or if you believe that losing is an impossibility then that really doesn't prepare you for right you're being the big disappointments that are gonna come later sure and i mean like i said I, I don't have children so i think it's kind of a silly example that people get as worked up about it as they do but it's not a bad example of the rule in action that if you did well, and it's just so much it, more respectable if like if you try and fail and try and fail and try and fail but really work hard and improve yourself and then get your victory that way Instead of just showing up, you know, it says a lot more. Sure, then it means something to you. Absolutely it does. So that's the eighth rule. It's a relatively simple one. Uh, Wizard's ninth rule. A contradiction cannot exist in reality, not in part nor in whole. Hmm, that's a thinker. It is one of the more esoteric rules. I've put a lot of thought into it, and in general, I think it's true. I think when we spot a contradiction, that's our way of, that's our brain's way of telling us that we're missing facts. Ah, yeah. I think that's why we're troubled by contradictions. Yeah. Again, it might go back to 
not being able to process facts or information that are contrary to our view of reality. Yeah, I, and I think that that's I think that's exactly why it's included as one of the rules in the series is sort of a reinforcement of the first rule. You know, if you spot something that seems like a contradiction, either the thing itself is false or one of your assumptions is false. You need to go rooting back around there until you figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Objectivism as a branch of philosophy is pretty anti-faith and pretty anti-religious. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing inherently wrong with that. But this is one of the points in the novels where Goodkind really goes to town on that impulse of his. <laughs> he kind of may as well just be like, All right, okay, y'all, let me learn you a thing. Yeah. Well, I guess the, my biggest question based on this whole conversation, because you mentioned before that there are definitely books that are peaks in this series, but they all seem to revolve around these rules. But you even said, I think in those cases, the rules seem shoehorned in. How interesting is the story around these rules generally to illustrate them? Does it really seem like he's is he typically the kind of guy that is because, you know, that's a complaint about the Matrix trilogy. No matter how good some of the action sequences are or whatever, they stop and have these long philosophical, boring ass conversations. You're just like, oh, somebody shoot me. Does that happen a lot in this series? Some books are worse about it than others. Some rules are worse about it than others. There's an almost inescapable trope in fantasy fiction that there has to be at least one character that we meet early in the story. Probably it's the main protagonist who doesn't know a whole lot about the world around him. Right. The farm boy. The farm boy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the, the author uses this as a as a device whereby his exposition can be delivered to the reader by delivering it to the character who doesn't know anything about it because the world is so dissimilar from ours that a lot of exposition is required. It happens, you know, like Carissa said, good kind is usually better at tell than show mm-hmm. some of the rules he he's much better at showing or maybe they just lend themselves better to examples this isn't one of those <laughs> they have to just stop and have this long conversation about it and i think this rule in a lot of ways underscores one of the weak points about objectivism unintentionally sure which, which is that objectivism doesn't do well do well with a lack of facts. Right. <laughs> I don't want to get off on a religious tangent any more than I appreciated it when he did here, but I think if you're completely honest with yourself, regardless of what your belief or lack of beliefs are, there's not a whole lot of evidence to support any belief right. or lack of belief. If you're going to be completely reasonable about it, there's not a whole lot to prefer one to the other. Nevertheless, objectivism is almost entirely staunchly atheist. Right. Whereas if they were really following their own rules, probably positive agnosticism would be closer. Sure. But objectivism isn't good at at admitting, I don't know. Right. And it doesn't deal well with situations where you not only don't have all the facts necessary in front of you to form a reasoned conclusion, but you can't. Yeah, I guess that's the problem with any extreme set of beliefs. Yes. Is that at some point you just you can't see the fault in it, even if the evidence doesn't necessarily fall on your side in order to fit into your system. You have to sort of just take some things and accept some things that, you know, might undo the whole thing. Yeah. Did you ever take an ethics class in college? No, because I have none. 
Okay. That's a lie. I did. It was like the very first college course I took. I took it as a summer school class between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. And it's one of the best classes I ever took. I had a really good time in it. And I was at a little community college near my house when I was taking it. And somehow I lucked into getting a professor with a PhD in ethics to teach this 101 course nice. at a tiny community college. And he really knew what he was about. And a lot of the class was just really interesting discussion. But he, you know, the very first class, I'll, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, the study of ethics is when philosophers have posited an all-encompassing theory of how to determine what's right and wrong right. In, any, in any case. And the way that we test a system of ethics is through moral conundrums. And if we can get the the current system of ethics that we're discussing to give us what we know is the wrong answer, then we've disproven it. Hmm. So the example that he came up with that we used throughout the entire course was if you can get a specific system of ethics to tell you that it's okay to put a baby in a lit pizza oven, you've disproven the system. What if it's a sausage baby? Well, to some extent, I think all babies are sausage babies, aren't they? Oh, but I mean like really good sausage. We didn't go into that. Maybe we should have. PhD Uh, my ass. Right. And at the end of every section, he would have us write a paper either supporting that ethical model that we'd been discussing or disproving it. And he told us up front, it's always easier to disprove one because you only have to find one place where it's wrong. Right. It's almost impossible to support one because you have to prove that it's right every time. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And I think that kind of ties back here is, you know, to what you were saying. This is, objectivism is an ethical model, and it has points where it falls flat on its face, where you can get it to tell you the wrong thing. And I think this is one of those points where several other points of objectivism sort of demand atheism be the answer, but several points in objectivism would lead you to conclude, if you followed them, that agnosticism is probably the closest we're going to get to the truth. Right. And you just sort of have to take the atheism on faith so so that the rest of it doesn't fall apart. Right. Ironically Uh, so. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And so, yeah, this is one of those points where they have to just stop and go through this long, convoluted discussion to explain the rule because it's not like the others and it doesn't – it's not just an, an obvious axiomatic truth. And how does he get told these rules? I mean, is it one guy who's sort of like his Yoda who every once in a while is like, oh, yeah, rule number nine. No, he encounters several wizards throughout the series that are older, more experienced wizards than he is that explain some of the rules to him. I see. I think the most frequent character that gives him a rule is his grandfather, and this is one of the rules delivered by his grandfather. But so is the first one. Yeah. So at what point do these rules like really fall off where it just starts being just malarkey? There's not a point. Oh, I just came up with a new wizard rule. Don't use the word malarkey. (laughs) I like the word malarkey. It fills a niche in the English language that no other rule or no other word really does. No, there's not a point where the rules just fall off into absurdism and for the rest of the series, they're just bad. They're just like the rest of the series. There are rules that are good, rules that are terrible, and rules that are just sort of okay. (laughs) At what point to you did it feel like he was just sort of writing this because he kind of felt like he had to to keep the money flowing? 
I don't think he ever was writing it just to keep the money flowing, at least not in the first 10 novels, which are the only ones I read, and draw the original main story to its conclusion. 11 original novels. Sorry, 11. I don't think that that happened, where he was just just in it for the money. The later ones, I can totally buy that, but I haven't read them, so I don't know. I think he drew it out as long as he did because he had more primer stuff on objectivism that he wanted to get in. And so sometimes that part feels shoehorned in, as Carissa said. Like, I wrote this whole novel just to get this line in. Right. And some of those novels are terrible. But then again, the eighth novel is, I think, the worst novel in the book, but it's one of the best rules. Right. So that brings us to Rule 10, correct? Rule 10, second to last. Willfully turning aside from truth is treason to oneself. Okay, there's definitely truth to that. Yeah. And again, you know, it, it seems like it's, I, li- I like the fact that so many of these do kind of come to the same theme. Again, that goes back to just people's perceptions and, and reality and, and so many times, and where I think we're all guilty of this, you blatantly ignore what's right truthfully in front of your face because it just doesn't work for you. I try very hard not to fall prey to that, honestly. I try to, too, but it's a human flaw. I mean, we've all done it. Oh, yeah. It's totally a human flaw. It's something that we all do. I didn't get into this during the course of the conversation because it would have made this even longer. But for almost all of these rules, at some point during the discussion of the rule itself in that particular novel, they go into how you defend yourself against the rule. Because these are all just human failings. And most of the time, the the consensus defense is know that it's a thing, know that you're going to do it, and just be mindful. Like, you're never, you're not going to, you know the rule, that doesn't mean you're going to avoid the pitfall forever. Right. You're going to screw it up. You'll screw it up less if you know that it's a rule and that it applies to you and you're watching for it. Sure. And this one is a perfectly valid example because you're absolutely right. We've all done that where, you know, whether it's politics or religion or our choice of spouse or the, you know, nonsense that people tell themselves about their children or whatever, where the facts in front of us say one thing and we just choose to believe something else because we can't deal with those facts. Yeah. And the reason that that's a rule in the way that it is, in my opinion anyway, is because the more you do that, the more your actual life is built on a series of lies. Yeah, absolutely. So your actual self becomes unrecognizable as a truth if you turn away from the facts in front of you. Absolutely it is. I agree. I The people that I tend to gravitate towards, I think, unless they're just really charming, I gravitate towards them because I believe that they are who they are, warts and all. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's odd, but I think it's easier for us to gravitate towards people and their warts than it is for us to acknowledge our own. Well, I mean, I have a wart fetish, so that's probably part <laughs> oh, of it. Oh, well, for you, you've lucked out then. No, but absolutely it is. I mean, it's always easier to point out someone else's failings. Yeah. But, you know, I think I have tried to live my life to be able to, if I'm going to point someone else's out, to make sure I damn well know what mine are and be ready to say. Sure. And I think that's a smart way to do things. And I think that's why he included this as a rule to remind you, you have yours too. It's important, as Chris said, not only in dealing with other people, but in dealing with yourself to be able to acknowledge them, maybe even embrace them. It's just that's a part of who I am. Absolutely. Because you can't know yourself otherwise. What you think of as yourself is not true. So now we get to the last rule of this original series. You're going to be disappointed here. <laughs> I was going to say, is I'm this sorry. a big one? That everything's been leading up to. Is, is this the Luke, I am your father? 
Yes. And no. And no. The 11th rule is also referred to by fans as the rule unwritten. Okay. The main character in the story, Richard, is a war wizard. Sweet. He doesn't follow the normal rules for how magic works in the story. His magic is almost entirely about intent and need, as opposed to arcane formula or whatever. As a result, we get all the way to the end of the series, and he still doesn't really have a very good grasp on how to make his magic do what he wants. Sometimes it works, sometimes it fails miserably. Most of the time, he just doesn't even bother to use it because it's unreliable. Right. But he's found himself in a position where he really needs it to work. And he needs it to work in a big way for the story to have a happy ending. Sure. So he spends this entire 11th book or 10th book. Is it 11th book? 11th book. Looking for this really ancient tome written by the last war wizard who lived several thousand years ago called Secrets to a War Wizard's Power. Because he figures if he can find the book and he can read the book and he can grasp the book, he can resolve the main story in a way that to him and his friends is a happy ending. Sure. And he finally finds the book and it's blank from cover to cover. Aww. Aww. Which is crushing at the time. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm not going to spoil it, but I got heavily into Stephen King's Dark Tower series at least for the first three books and then I said fuck you when he kind of cheated me at the beginning of the fourth book but i was talking to somebody about it recently you know there's a lot of talk about that now that the movies are going to start and uh i was like you know what i never finished the book so they were like you want me to spoil it for you i was like yeah i don't know if i'm ever going to get back to the series he told me how the last book ended and i was just like oh i'm kind of glad i didn't read that whole series then i mean but then you started thinking about it and i was like but in a way that's kind of cool and kind of ballsy and that's true here as well. I said you'd be disappointed. It's kind of the Luke, I'm your father moment, and it's kind of not. So he finds the book, and it's blank, and he's just crushed. And then he recognizes what it means, and he never tells us what it means. He still manages... Which I gotta say, I kind of like it when authors and playwrights do that. I don't mind uh, an objective, like, it can, be, it can mean anything you want it to mean. I generally do. I think that that's... Lazy. Lazy. In this particular case, I'm willing to give him a pass. Here's the actual rule. You have to discover the truth for yourself. Uh, Ah. Just being told only helps you so much. Right. I mean, he's not wrong. Right. (laughs) That of all of them seems the most, like, refrigerator magnety to me. Yeah, I could see it on Facebook in, like, a font over, like, a picture of... A slightly blurry picture of the mountains or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Like, I love it when people post those kind of things to Facebook. A, things you've heard a million times before. And B, you just get the impression that they think they just changed your life. In the context of the novel, it makes more sense. Sure. Because there's things going on in the novel with another book that the enemy faction is putting a lot of time and effort into finding. And the fact that he finds this book and it's blank is the hint that he needs to teach him that the book that they're looking for is not true. Right. But yeah, I mean, stated as a as a refrigerator magnet, it's one of the weaker ones. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also like, because obviously a lot of these rules you've kind of gotten, it's 
and on their on their face, they are phrased slightly differently than other sort of platitudes we've heard before. But this one is straight out like, "You have to learn the truth for yourself." Wah. Search your feelings. Like, yeah. You know it to be true. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like I know. I'm pretty sure I've heard that before. No, I'm the first person that ever said it. Wah. I mean, like I said, I'm yeah, willing I... to give him a pass for leaving it to the to the reader, even though I normally think that that's incredibly artistically lazy because yeah. it's kind of a clever way to do it. He doesn't tell us. That you have to discover the truth for yourself. He leaves up oh, God, for us to discover the truth. Book. Yeah, exactly. That would have really been awful. The fact that he doesn't do that and that he leaves it for the reader to discover the truth for themselves, that they must discover the truth for themselves, at least gets it some some cool meta points. Yes. Yeah, for uh, sure. And it's kind of balty. Yeah. Because, I mean, it is really difficult, I think, as any sort of creative person to give your readers, your viewers, or whatever, a truly satisfying ending. And I think a lot of times people will start writing something. Like, my guess is he probably had this ending planned from the moment he started writing it. Whereas a lot of other times, like, you get yourself bogged down in the story and you're like, how am I going to end this to where everyone's satisfied? And I think sometimes you just got to let the story end the way it should end for you as opposed to trying really hard to satisfy because most of the time, if you try too hard, you will fail. Yeah, I mean, and that's that is a problem that he has as a writer throughout the rest of the series. Some of the time, several points worse than others, but he will paint himself into a corner and then because the series isn't over and the main character can't die or whatever, he has to just paint a door where there wasn't really one for them to he get out. He didn't get out of the cock car. Yeah. yeah. That is one of the most valid and often cited criticisms of his writing is that he paints himself into a corner and then in a very John Galt fashion, the main character just imagines a way out. Right. And honestly, that's a thing that fantasy more than many fictional genres has fantasy authors do that a lot oh yes they do and because you have to have the jeopardy yeah or at least the problem like is that using the whatever your magic in your fantasy series is as your catch-all fallback answer to everything oh i just magic the answer away is right. shitty like we, we've talked before about how stephen king is terrible at ending novels yeah his endings are atrocious yeah a majority of good kinds novels end fine they're not maybe amazing but they're at least consistent and they work and it ends and it's fine right one of them and in fact it bothers me the most in the book with the rule deserve victory (laughs) is the absolute worst until the last novel of magicking up an ending like there is no way we're getting out of this the protagonists are all going to die and the world is going to end except magic and a happy ending right yeah, that to me seems the hardest thing about writing anything fantasy or magic involved is it being so hard not to break your own rules because it's just too hard to think of another way to do it. Yeah, and it is the most egregious of all of the novels, and it's the one about deserving victory. I'm like, you didn't deserve shit. <laughs> you just, like, invent, like, that's not even magic that works with the magic you've told us that works. It You just <laughs> came up with some shit so that he didn't die. Fucking, really? Yeah, yeah, well, that's one of the reasons I kind of signed off the Dark Tower series. The third book ended on such a great cliffhanger, and then we had to wait for so long for the fourth book to come out. And it came out, and I read the first chapter, how they got out of that situation. I was like, oh, fuck you. I'm done. Yeah. And I'm glad you guys stuck with the series, because it seems like overall you both reasonably enjoyed it. Oh, sure. At this point, when I'm a rereader. I read the same books over and over again, because if I didn't, I'd go broke. Right. At this point, you know, I've read the full series through twice. And I've read some of the earlier books because I read the books 
as they came out. I read the early, I've read some of the earlier books probably a dozen times. Right. When I read the series at this point, I read book one, I read book two, I read book six, and I stop. Right. Which is a weird way to do it, but it works. Well, uh, you know the story. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't need to go. I, I don't need to slog through the parts I don't like. I don't need to watch the prequels again to appreciate yes. the Empire Strikes Back. Exactly. Right. I will say that in it's kind of off topic, but since we were talking about it, it's a tangent. I think that's becoming a bigger problem for the fantasy genre in general. The painting yourself into a corner and then painting yourself out. Like if you think about the, some of the earliest fantasy, like Tolkien. Yeah. Magic's never really explained in Tolkien. Right. We're never really sure what Gandalf is actually capable of and what he's not. We get right. some indications of what he's not capable of because of things he doesn't do. Right. But then again, maybe he just chose not to. But well, I mean, like I said before, I think that's that's the problem with writing anything. It's the same problem as when you when you write a super powerful character. I think that's one of the things that hurt the Matrix trilogy. To be totally honest, is that Neo became so powerful. They were just like, how do we get this guy in trouble and danger at all? We have to sort of construct some things and break some rules. And, you know, I think when you create a person that can seemingly do whatever they want, whenever, how are you going to make a compelling story where they get into trouble? Superman, cough. Yeah. Well, at least he's got kryptonite. Yeah, but you can only use kryptonite so many times before it becomes oh, sure. implausible. Like, how much it of this crap actually made it to the Earth? just as strong as him. Right. I think the problem in modern fantasy novels is that it has become so much the norm to painstakingly describe how your magic system works. Mm-hmm. That when you break it to create that necessary conflict... It's so obvious to the reader. Yeah. And it's so insulting. Yeah. I mean, it could really just be something as simple as you can't do your magic without a wand. Oh, no, I broke my wand. Sure. And that, I mean, that's, that works pretty well in Harry Potter. They're, yes, it, it does. It that's sets up it some is. conflicts, and there are some points where they can't use their magic, and that sets up some conflicts. But, I mean, the other thing that works well in Harry Potter, I think, is one of the things that makes it kind of stand out in just in terms of fantasy, not so much as young adult fantasy or whatever, although I do think it's an exceptional series on a lot of fronts, is oh, yeah. that there are rules to magic, and they're pretty painstakingly really explained, one. but magic in and of itself isn't this end-all, be-all solution to all your problems. Right. In fact, that's one of the themes of the series, is that it's a tool, and it will help you sometimes, but it also creates problems that wouldn't exist yeah. if, it, if you didn't have it. Finding out he was a wizard did not automatically cure all his problems at home. It made them worse in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it introduced him to some brand new problems that he didn't know about. And Goodkind does not avoid that pitfall with his series, even though he never allows the main character to really learn how his magic works and be able to reliably count on it, it's there when the author needs it. I mean, it's, it's really right. one of the best examples of the power of the plot. Yes. The magical energy field that binds all things together. Right. It's really there as a mechanism for the author more than anything else. But overall, if someone were to say, hey, I'm looking for a really good fantasy book series, would you guys recommend it? Yeah, I would. Yeah, absolutely. It's a perfectly fine high fantasy series, and it lasts for a really long time. So if you want something to get into to read for a long time, yeah, 
totally. Well, there you go. And that's what matters. And I have learned a lot today that I didn't know before. I didn't know anything about the wizard rules until, what, three days ago when we suggested this topic? Yep. So thank you, Zach, for educating me. Sure. Anytime you guys want to to geek out about something, it's fine. I'm pretty geek. Oh, there'll be plenty of opportunities. (laughs) But I think this would probably be a good time to wrap everything up. Zach, thanks for doing this. Thanks for educating us and hopefully the listeners. I'm sure you guys can, can find these books now. Is it too late to say spoilers? It's probably too late to say spoilers. I tried not to spoil anything big. I think I did an okay job. Chris, did I spoil anything massive? No, I think I probably came closer to spoiling stuff than you did. <laughs> the only thing I worried about was the end of the entire series and the book being blank. <laughs> but maybe we'll just put it in the description. <laughs> there are some spoilers. Sure. But it's kind of something you had to bring up, so I don't fault you for it. Zach, is there anything else you want to tell the listening audience? Anything that uh, you want to plug or anything you got going on that you want people to know about? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you remember how we talked about honesty before? That was a beautiful example of that rule. I didn't dance around anything. You weren't like, oh, yeah, I got a movie coming out or something. Yeah, no, nope. I, I don't do any of that kind of stuff. Well, you guys maybe you time should to plug your own things. Well, we should. We, we shall. Carissa, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, how can they do that? Best way would be to hit us up on Twitter at lucky underscore 10K or email us at lucky10,000 at gmail.com. All spelled out, lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Also, as always, if you want to give us a five-star review on Stitcher or iTunes, you do that and we will read it. Even if the end of your review turns out to be a blank book, we will still read it. I don't know how we would do that, but it would be an interesting challenge. You just take a long pause. Yes. We'll use magic. There we go. Thanks again, Zach. I think that's everything. And until next time, I hope you got lucky tonight. Good night, nerds. Thank you for being a part of the Lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan and Carissa. Email us at lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Find Lucky 10,000 on Twitter at lucky underscore 10k. And visit our podcast network site at beardedpodsnetwork.com.